On this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we discuss the latest news, recent experiences on surveys, and update on the emergency use authorizations of the COVID-19 vaccines. And in our focus segment, we interview Christina Benton with Coding Compliance Management about current coding and billing challenges. Welcome to the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, the longest-running podcast specifically focused on the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. We would like to thank our sponsors, Surgical Information Systems, providing cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers. Trivalence. Trivalence offers a comprehensive next-generation ASC solution that optimizes payment and supply chain performance, enabling actionable data insights. And Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies the nation's leading regulatory and accreditation compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, please visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. Welcome to episode 185 of the ASC podcast with John Gailey for April 30th, 2023. We're recording from our studios in Spencerport, New York. This is Sue Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC podcast with John Gailey and Operations Manager for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. We would like to remind our listeners that the ASC regulatory environment is a rapidly evolving landscape and the material presented in this episode is based on the most current information available as of the date of recording. As such, it is important to recognize that this information may be subject to change, and we advise all ASCs to stay up to date with the latest regulations and guidelines issued by the relevant regulatory bodies. And joining me today is John Gailey, the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies and one of the most respected experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. With over 30 years of experience, Mr. Gailey has authored over 10 books on the ASC industry and is a sought-after speaker on regulatory accreditation and finance issues. So, Sue, we've been talking about the puppies for mm -hmm. quite a while here. Uh, we only have one puppy left, and yep. he'll be going home in a couple days. Uh, we're going to miss them, but uh, not so much all of the things that go with it. <laughs> all of the work that goes along with it. <laughs> well, it'd be <laughs> nice to have our house back, too. Yes, and they're all going to... Very happy homes who are, who are really enjoying them. We've gotten a lot of pictures yeah. from the ones that have already gone to their homes. So so we feel feel good about where we they're do. going, we so do. it helps. And, of course, we've been busy on a lot of things. We've been preparing for the multi-state conference, which is going to be June 12th and 13th. Uh, the, during the multi-state conference, it's actually a two-day uh, conference presented virtually. Uh, we're working with five different state associations, the New York Association, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, Virginia, and Texas. And if you're a member of any of those associations, or if you become a member before you sign up for the conference, uh, you will get attendance at that conference for free. And that, <clears throat> with that conference, uh, you get 16 AEUs if you are a, um, a, a CASC uh, certificate and four IPCHs if you are a CAPE certificate. So if you're both, you actually end up with uh, 20 uh, credits there. And as I said, it has full uh, two full days of content. Each of the sessions this time, it's kind of unique, isn't it, Sue? We have uh, two-hour sessions mm -hmm. for each of the sessions. In other words, we're going deep 
Um, unlike so many conferences where you go to and you get an hour of content and yep. uh, sometimes we just don't have, especially myself when I speak, just don't have the ability to get everything in. Uh, we decided we'd do something unique with this multi-state and the ability to present it virtually and to have it recorded so that you can listen to it over and over yeah. uh, cannot be overstated. So. And if you do attend it or if you have your a problem, you sign up for it and you can't attend it live, uh, you will have access to the recordings afterwards. So, And also, if you're a patron member of the podcast, you will also get it for free. So yet another thing that you can do is sign up to become a patron. Um, and actually, if you think about it, the full year membership as a patron is the same cost as the conference itself, which is $299.99. I think even for uh, mm-hmm. almost $300, uh, this is still a great deal. So. Yeah. Go to our website at ASCPodcast.com and sign up for the Multi-State Conference, which is June 12th and 13th, presented virtually. And, Sue, we have the uh, Director of Nursing and Nursing Manager Boot Camp coming up. We've been planning for it. We're Mm -hmm. really ramping up the advertising for the conference and uh, uh, very excited. This will be, I think it, oh, man, I'm losing track of time here. I think it is our uh, fifth DON Boot Camp. And uh, it's become extremely popular, and uh, we have oh, of all of our boot camps, we have over 200 graduates at this point. We get to to meet a lot of them on Saturday mm-hmm. mornings when we do our uh, our virtual uh, Zoom sessions on Saturday mornings. So uh, again, go to our website at ASCPodcast.com for more information and sign up for the Director of Nursing Nurse Manager Boot Camp. And we've also introduced our new ASC Central Premium Access Program. Premium membership includes a patron membership access to all of our boot camps and a wide range of additional resources, including access to comprehensive and relevant recorded and live conferences, private consultations, general and individualized training for your staff as ongoing interaction and and ongoing interaction with leading experts in the ASC industry. So it's a great deal and it uh, you know kind of provides uh, ASCs with uh, a, a level of service that they um, they don't get quite from the, the patron membership and they might need. Uh, we'll provide a link in the show notes. It, it really is a bargain, I think. And and it's not yet on the ASC podcast website, but it will be up there soon. So if you want to sign up for it and want more information, follow the link in our show notes. So, Sue, let's talk about some of the recent news. All right. On April 1st, 2023, the Joint Commission issued a safety advisory on preventing light source-related burns during surgery. Some laparoscopic or arthroscopic procedures can cause burns from the light sources, which, according to the advisory, can go unnoticed as they don't produce smoke or charring, so you, you may miss that even with a patient being burned. The two major sources of illumination during these procedures are the light source and the light cable. Both can generate very high temperatures, especially if there's any malfunction of the heat-minimizing devices, of course. Um, if the light or cable is defective, if the wrong connector or component is used, or different brands of connectors are used, and they tend to be interchangeable. So this can happen if you're not you know, really um, being careful with that. And another cause of burns is... Um, the detached light cables resting against the surgical drapes. The patient may be burnt and permanently scarred without knowledge of the surgical team. Um, Even momentary proximity between an illuminated laparoscopic or arthroscopic light lead and a surgical drape can cause a full thickness burn to the patient's skin without generating any smoke or fire. The risk of thermal injury rises with the brightness of the lamp used, which makes sense. Um, One study demonstrated that the heat at the tip of the optical light cord can produce immediate superficial tissue necrosis that can extend into the subcutaneous fat even when the, the optical tip is not in direct contact with the skin. 
The maximum temperature at the tip of the optical cable varied between 119.5 degrees Celsius and 268.6 degrees Celsius, which is over 247 to 515 degrees Fahrenheit. When surgical drapes were exposed to the tip of the light source, the time to char was three to six seconds. The degree and volume of injury increased with longer exposure times, and significant injury was recorded with the optical cable only within three millimeters from the skin. This is kind of unbelievable if you think about it. Just mm-hmm. a simple light source uh, yeah. can cause temperatures. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm looking at Unfortunately, I don't know Celsius very well, but 250 to 515 yeah, degrees that's... Fahrenheit is pretty high simply for a light source, not even talking mm-hmm. about a cautery here. Yeah, and to think you could – it could happen you wouldn't notice it until, right, you know, right. the patient – woke up and complained. So here are some of their safety suggestions. First, to educate everybody on the risks and label the light sources with, they actually gave the specific message, just, you know, put warning, high-intensity light sources and cables can ignite drapes and other materials, complete all cable connections before activating the light source. Um, Do not turn on the light source before the cable is connected to the scope. Uh, The end of the cable becomes hot, and that could ignite dry combustibles. If the cable is disconnected from the scope during surgery, hold the cable end away from the drapes or place it on a moist towel. Keep illuminated light cords away from drapes, the patient's skin, personnel skin, and any flammable material. Um, Connect the correct size light source to the correct scope. And inspect all your instruments and equipment before use to ensure the equipment is in good working order. You know, so we've been talking recently about the items that you need to ta- uh, to uh, refer to during the timeout. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it would be a good point, I think, during the timeout to uh, uh, to have this discussion about yeah, the, the light source here. So, mm-hmm. uh, again, that's a, an item that we've been discussing lately during surveys and during survey preps because surveyors are watching a lot more now to make sure that there is some discussion about the equipment and the supplies, availability and readiness. And, mm-hmm. and as you mentioned, here, uh, making sure that inspection is done prior to the procedure and that everything is in working order. Um, And we saw some news on prior authorization for gastroenterology endoscopy services. So beginning June 1st, 2023, um, if you're a member of United Healthcare Commercial Plan, you'll be required to obtain prior authorization for gastroenterology endoscopy services in accordance with the terms of their benefit plan. So please note that screening, um, they had noted in their And they noted that screening colonoscopy procedures are not included in this new medical necessity review requirement. So that's good. But um, the effective procedures will be, um, if you're having an EGD, um, capsule endoscopies, diagnostic colonoscopies, and surveillance colonoscopies, which is kind of interesting because you can do a screening one, which is good, but if you actually need a diagnostic one. But it's not, you know, they're not saying they won't approve it, but it's just that extra step. And many organizations around the country, including ASCA, have sent letters to United Healthcare about this proposed policy, expressing their concerns that this could lead to a delay in patients' access to medical care, which, of course, could result in more advanced disease um, with a poorer prognosis. So, you know, this is just this one thing, but, you know, it, it could also be sort of a trend. So, yeah, I've been concerned, uh, you know, as the industry many years ago mo- moved away from uh, prior authorizations here. Now we, we're starting that reverse trend and mm-hmm. of all things with something as, as vital as this. And yeah. we saw during the pandemic, too, this whole issue of people delaying care, mm-hmm. uh, especially for colonoscopies. And anecdotally, I'm sure we're going to find some statistics soon, but anecdotally, uh, from our gastroenterology Definitely. Uh, specialists, okay. we've been hearing there's been an increase in the amount of cancer diagnosis mm-hmm. and delayed mm-hmm. treatment. Yeah, and the last thing you want to do is make that more complicated and harder to, to get to. Right. 
Next, uh, the FDA authorized changes to simplify the use of the bivalent uh, mRNA COVID-19 vaccine. So on April 18th, 2023, the Food and Drug Administration amended the Emergency Use Authorization, or EUA, uh, for the COVID-19 vaccines, the bivalent version of it, to simplify the vaccination schedule for most individuals. And this action includes authorizing the current va- uh, bivalent vaccine to be used uh, for all doses administered to individuals six months of age and older. The monovalent uh, vaccine is no longer authorized for use in the United States. So they have pulled the EUA or the emergency use authorization for the monovalent. And as I understand, it's no longer really available anyway. Mm-hmm. So let alone the whole issue of it being authorized. As a result, the CDC is revising the authorizations and recommendations for both the Pfizer and the Moderna bivalent vaccines. And we'll provide a link to uh, this this, uh, information from the CDC. And I really, really encourage everybody to read it because it is particularly important for our ASCs, for for these organizations to uh, read this to make sure that uh, as they're hiring people who are required to be vaccinated are following mm-hmm. the new rules. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm not going to read all of it, but I did want to talk about the section on individuals five years or of age or older. So now if, you, uh, if you're if you an unvaccinated individual, a single dose of the bivalent vaccine is now recommended and would be considered fully vaccinated. Uh, individuals who have received one or more doses of the monovalent COVID-19 vaccine, a single dose of the bivalent is administered at least two months after any monovalent vaccine. Sue, you and I, I think we got the bivalent in... I don't remember. I'm going to call the pharmacy and find out exactly when, but we have have had it. Yeah, it was very soon after it came out. So it's been out for quite a while. Uh, Individuals 65 years of age and older who have received one dose of the bivalent vaccine, an additional uh, uh, dose may be administered at least four months after the dose of the bivalent vaccine. Mm -hmm. So if we decided to get a booster, that would be – we're not over – it is important for us to note that we are not over 65 years of age. But that does say maybe, so I'm assuming that's not required. That's right, right. Immunocompromised individuals five years of age and older who have received one dose of a bivalent COVID-19 vaccine – an additional dose with the bivalent vaccine may be administered at least two months following the dose of the bivalent vaccine. Um, additional doses may be administered at the discretion of their health care provider. So I provided a link here to that information. Sue, so what I'm concerned about is that, of course, now we're starting to see the CMS regulations and the conditions for coverage that require mm-hmm. everybody to be yeah. Uh, vaccinated to work at a surgery center. You know, if you read through it, it talks about the two doses, and now you know that's not an option. You, uh, if you're unvaccinated, you, you're, you don't have access to that initial vaccine, and you'll be using the bivalent, which only requires one, according to this new emergency yeah. use yeah. authorization. So last week, I read an article about a company that is introducing artificial intelligence into coding, and without concentrating that company, I started wondering about how disruptive. AI or artificial intelligence mm-hmm. would be to coding. Now, we're going to interview in a few minutes here uh, our friend Christina Benton. And unfortunately, I we did the interview before mm-hmm. I had this mm-hmm. uh, uh, this article to look at or this note to look at. But it did make me start to think about what, of an, what an impact artificial intelligence mm-hmm. is going to have on healthcare and in particular on coding. Products like chat GPT are making people uh, be concerned about various jobs, uh, including coding. Artificial intelligence has the potential to seriously impact many functions in healthcare. I think many of the functions in ASC are pretty mm-hmm. safe. For example, I, I don't think AI is going to uh, replace the doctor or the nurses at the bedside or the technicians or sterile processing. 
uh, anytime soon. But positions like transcriptions, which are already starting to disappear as computer and real-time transcription systems come mm-hmm. into the prime time, uh, are certainly at risk. And at the very least, AI is sure to improve the productivity and help coders to have access to a broader range of information than they currently get from their coding books and resources. So hopefully it'll just be sort of an added tool that can help them streamline what they're doing and and maybe make their job easier rather than replacing them. But right. And, and, and I'm sure if I did talk to Christina, that's what you would say, that mm-hmm. you really can't replace uh, the mm-hmm. intelligence that comes, the real intelligence mm-hmm. that comes from, from a coder that has experience. But if you provide them better tools, perhaps they'll be able to do a better job and to code faster and more accurately. So uh, just something to keep an eye on is uh, artificial. It seems like every day a new article comes out about artificial intelligence. I want to talk about some of our recent experiences uh, during surveys. Uh, Sue, every single survey we go on or every single survey that I do, we seem to find penetrations in the smoke barriers. Mm-hmm. No matter how much we work, we have a client who recently just finished construction. The place is uh, open. They were ready for their emergen- their early options survey. And uh, we had just looked for penetrations Mm -hmm. just the week before, probably the day before. And sure enough, the uh, surveyor comes through and finds five penetrations, all very small pinhole penetrations in the smoke barrier. And it just dawned on me, I I believe my life safety team has been telling me that they're now required or you're going to be now required to uh, stamp any of the firewalls and smoke barriers indicating what the fire rating is for those. But it dawned on me, it might not be a bad idea to put a sign above the ceiling in Mm -hmm. uh, the surgery center that just says to people, before you put a penetration, before you put a hole in this Mm -hmm. wall, uh, can you please, you know, contact administration and to make sure that 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 hole is is covered? Well, I know you've you've mentioned several times that if you're having any work done, you know, IT or or any phones installed, anything like that, that you really have to talk to the people that are doing it and let them know that that you need to be notified of, of any type of work that they do that involves um, going through that that firewall. Yeah, so I think posting a sign above it might be a, a quick way of reminding them or maybe stamping that wall mm-hmm. with that notice. Mm-hmm. Um, we had another long discussion uh, during one of our Saturday sessions, I believe, about agency nurses. And uh, I, uh, the challenges of staffing become uh, even more challenging. Organizations have been hiring agency nurses, and it's extremely important to remind um, ASCs, that, that those people come in, have to be treated like an employee. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we're seeing an increase in this, we're uh, sometimes as a surveyor coming in, there is no record of those those nurses. There might be you know something from the agency, but you need to have a personnel record for them. You need to have yeah. their health record. You're going to have to have training information. You have to verify their license. If they're a nurse, they still have to be oriented. So they're going to have to go through the same orientation program mm-hmm. uh, that your staff is going through. So it might yeah. be faster Uh, But it's going to take a couple hours. This is not something you can call an agency nurse up and uh, at 6 o'clock in the morning, they show up at 7 o'clock, and then you can put them on the floor at 8 o'clock. They're Mm -hmm. going to have to have uh, orientation. Uh, You're going to have to put together their personnel records. You have to double check to make sure that they have a license. You're still going to have to assess their competence on your equipment. They might have demonstrated competence as a pre-op or post-op nurse, uh, but you have to make sure that they're competent to use your equipment. Mm -hmm. And especially they need to know what to do in the event of an emergency. If there's a code blue, where's the code blue cart? What Mm -hmm. is uh, included in it? And Uh, we've had instances where people, where things have maybe not a code blue, but but a somewhat of an emergency situation. And they'll say, well, there was an issue because the agency nurse felt it should be done this way or questioned the doctor. And 
you know, then they clearly weren't trained appropriately when they came in. Right. And, and of course, I'm really concerned about situations in which something happens. They, mm. they won't know where the code card is. Yeah. They won't know yeah. where things are on the code mm-hmm. card. So be very, very careful when you're bringing agency nurses on. The ideal situation, I think, is to uh, have a relationship with an agency where those nurses that are going to be coming to your center have come prior to the date that they are uh, actually working on the floor and that you have a pool of agency nurses from that agency uh, that that works specifically with your organization. Mm -hmm. And lastly, I wanted to mention that we have found that fines from the state for noncompliance with uh, with the regulations are starting again. I, this is something I saw back in the 90s when I first started out in the industry. Uh, but recently, uh, we saw some very significant fines being levied in the state of Pennsylvania. Uh, so as I think states are starting to have more of a challenge with their budgets, as they, they realize that they might be able to use fines as another revenue source, um, I fear that we're going to si- start to find an increase in this. So I, I don't think we need uh, to to always use things like this as uh, leverage against our our owners and our doctors to to stay compliant. But if that's uh, if this helps, you might want to point out that failure to comply uh, could have ramifications more than just um, you know losing your license mm-hmm. or more than just not being able to operate for a period of time, but yeah. perhaps uh, having to pay some significant fines. So keep an eye out for any changes. Certainly, the state of Pennsylvania is already starting to do that. So let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll uh, talk to Christina Benton with Coding Compliance Management about recent challenges in coding and billing. It's been a long day, and the surveyor has just left, and you are exhausted and looking at the list of items that you have to address. You wonder... How can I deal with this and still take care of my patients? More importantly, you wonder, how can I ever keep up with all of the regulations, standards, and accreditation requirements? How can I always be prepared for a survey and reduce my stress levels? Well, that's what Ambitory Healthcare Strategies does, day in, day out. We become your outsourced regulatory and accreditation resource. We can maintain your policy manual, develop your education programs, help out with fire and disaster drills, do your risk assessments, oversee your quality improvement activities, help run your quality improvement meetings and governing body meetings, and we can even prepare your monthly or quarterly financial statements and help you figure out where you are financially. We are a retainer-based service. We don't take ownership. We don't charge based on your revenue. We have one fixed monthly fee, and we can tailor your services to your exact needs. So whether you're looking for help getting over a survey, preparing for a survey, or looking for a long-term relationship to assist you with your ongoing regulatory and or financial needs, please give us a call at 585-594-1167 or email us at info at ahstrategies.com. That is info at ah-strategies.com or visit our website at ah-strategies.com. So I'm here with Christina Benton, my dear, dear friend. We, we do a lot of uh, conferences together. We uh, spend a lot of time at ASCO on the education committee together. And we were just talking the other day and thought that it might be time to talk about coding and, and uh, billing challenges, especially coding right now, because there's been so much that has happened since uh, the pandemic on the staffing side. So welcome, Christina, to the podcast. Well, thank you, John. I'm glad to be here. So we, you and I were talking the other day about coding 
of course, we talk constantly. So um, uh, let me just boil it down that we were talking specifically about coding audits, uh, the challenges that some of the surgery centers are having right now about in-house versus uh, uh, outsourced uh, coding. And I thought it might be a good thing to discuss because I actually, I don't even remember if we've ever discussed it in any level of uh, detail here. So uh, why don't we just start by talking about what how important coding is. I mean, I joke a lot, oh, why don't we just get the physician's uh, code and, and we'll go with that. And we all know that that's not a very good idea. But why don't we start by talking about the importance of coding for the ASC's profitability? Sure. I always start off talking with the facility administrators that no matter how many cases you have in your ASC or high volume facility, for example, you may have excellent patient satisfaction. You are in jeopardy because the ASC business staff may be green or not given the proper training. It needs to be successful specifically your coding. So you may have 1,500 cases coming through the door, your nurses are blowing and going, and you drop down in the revenue cycle in a jeopardy of your financial health of your facility because the coding isn't being performed to the highest level of quality and accuracy. That accuracy equates to your revenue stream. If you're not performing the highest accuracy, you're not getting your bang for the your the bang for the bucks, and you're getting minimizing your return on your per case cost and reimbursement. So it's always important that we have that particular coding piece, the highest expertise in that position so that you can demand and expect your highest return on your cases. Yeah. And and there's also legal issues too. It's not just maximizing your reimbursement, which of course is important, but the flip side of it is, you know, your, your, your very uh, existence could be endangered if you're not doing coding properly. Absolutely. It's important to have those with the expertise in place. I will say from an audit perspective, if, if you are to be audited from the governmental side or from individual payers, it lends credibility to have a coder in that position that is qualified, has the expertise, and shows it by having the certifications and also your backup from a percentage from an audit scoring history. So continuing to audit your coder and continuing to provide that coder with continued CEUs or training will do at the minimum provide or lend to the expertise and credibility of that position, which if I'm going into audit, because we also do audits, we also do coding. I want to see from an audit perspective that that position has that credibility and that additional training via a certification. So Christina, one of the things that you and I talk about periodically, I know we do this when we uh, we do our conferences together, is that a frequent comeback I hear from the physicians, especially physician owners, is, oh, we don't really need a professional coder because we can just use the codes that the uh, that my office is using. In other words, the, that they're, uh, the, the surgeons, surgeons coders are using. What do you think of that? If you could see me, it would be cringe level um, response in that regards. 
we do get this uh, frequently from the ASC because they are in partner with many of these surgeons where they want to try to streamline the expense of having a coder or they can't find a coder. So why not utilize what the physician is coding or what the physician office is coding? Codes from a CPT level may be utilized from the AMA, but it doesn't lend to the same from a facility perspective. There's different guidelines from the facility of what can be reported. There are differences in what the the physician can report as far as their professional fees, different modifiers. The reimbursement is absolutely different in respect to that. So we we cannot just utilize and try to make apples to apples. It is an apples to oranges on the reimbursement and the reporting. Well, and and isn't it also true that that if they're relying on the coders in their offices – the coders that the offices are are hiring are not always of the highest quality. I agree with that in respect to I from when I was a little little newbie in a physician office because I I've, I've come from a physician office years ago and went into the ambulatory surgery center arena and typically and I say this not to step on anybody's toes typically The physician would provide his face sheet that simply had what was performed, whether in a title or what he performed in that he hand wrote the CPT codes that he thought should be able to be reported. And so they may or may not have in more cases than not, they may not have had that additional training that is needed to be able to understand to, that they have to review the entire operative report. And it, again, is apples to oranges. So from the ASC side, you want that, that coder who has that extra level of expertise, who has performed coding from reading operative reports, from having that ASC training. And that's why I always say simply because someone has a new credential behind their name, you're trying to hire them, doesn't mean they've had the expertise in literally doing what they said they're doing. And that is why when we have a facility that is saying they want to hire this coder, we put have them put them to the test. Give them some of your own operative reports to see whether or not they understand the procedures performed, whether or not they can code those procedures accurately. And finally, also to just ensure and guarantee that they can code these cases timely. Is it taking them eight hours to code 10 operative reports? That's a no-brainer. We aren't going to hire that code. Well, and, and the coding certifications are different depending upon the specialties and the types of facilities, too. Correct. They... Nowadays, there there are several different credentialing organizations out there. We try to we quite frankly hone in on AHEMA and AAPC. Both of them have a significant different level of certifications. You have from each specialty to ASC coding. Simply though, AAPC, um, American Academy of Professional Coders. 
simply because a coder might have a different specialty or credential within that particular organization doesn't mean they can't code ASC cases at all. But you want them to have surgery coding expertise if they're coming from an evaluation and management, meaning your professional side or emergency room, it's difficult or inpatient. It's difficult to, unless you give them a test to determine whether or not they are going to be able to handle it. And I will tell you, John, I've gone from trying to secure ASC coders, giving them tests, getting well over 150 resumes, many of them inpatient coders that say, yes, I have outpatient expertise, and none of them were hireable because they were not able to pass our ASC coding test. And you're so right. I I actually taught coding. I I joke about this because I can't imagine that I was teaching coding 20, 25 years ago, but uh, uh, that was a much simpler time than uh, Christina, or at least I that's what I like to say. Uh, but I can remember from that time that the huge differences, even between physician practice or professional uh, coding and surgical coding. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I can certainly understand how there, you know, are completely different certifications for it. Uh, so we'll uh, we'll put links in for the uh, the two different organizations so that you can uh, can look up the uh, the different at least they can correlate somebody that might be applying for a job with what their certification actually means. What what certification do you recommend or certifications do you recommend uh, for uh, for coders in the ASC uh, space? I recommend from quite frankly those two agencies or organizations specifically with the AAPC that is where we tend to really gravitate when we see a coder's credentials that they may have the you know ASC credentials versus orthopedic credentials versus there is one for certified outpatient coder we look at those um, the, those are the types of credentials that we look at But more importantly, in addition to them having a credential, because that minimizes your risk. Again, as I mentioned earlier, it will minimize your risk having a credential, having these credentials. But more importantly, what is their experience in ASC coding? I can go and look at a resume as, as those that are interested in hiring. And have they literally been in the trenches with coding? surgeries, multi-specialties, that particular facility's case volume. They may, you may have, we have a lot of many ASCs that are now single specialty, GI only or pain management only. If that particular coder, and she may or he may be, have a credential just in the ASC certification realm, but he or she may never have coded GI. That's a big concern because there are so many nuances in just simply coding the GI. It could be very simple. It could be you're closing the doors if you don't have that that expertise in simply just GI or simply just pain management. So I have to move move on with the certification to include, I have to see, have they really performed true surgery, multi-specialty coding, not just hospital outpatient and not simply 
I'm a coder and I've done some physician work for physician surgeon. Um, evaluation and management doesn't help me if I'm looking for an ASC coder. Emergency room radiology doesn't help me. And inpatient doesn't necessarily help me at all. Don't let, don't be talked into getting or securing an inpatient coder unless you've tested them and you see on the resume that they've done substantial work with ASCs. And I think what you're saying is- this No matter how many. Yeah. Okay. I think you're also saying that this isn't a good place to be uh, be learning how to code, right? Or, or, or fresh out of school. Correct. That, yeah. That's absolutely correct. Um, I don't think facilities have that luxury to be able to train anyone in coding these days. They may or they may. You may have someone retiring that's had 30 years and they've had they've got credentials. They've got the history. They've been audited and have proven through audits that they're at 95 or better accuracy. And so you may have that comfort level as a facility to be able to use that person to train someone but they are going to need operative report to operative report review on all levels of diagnosis, modifiers, HICS picks, CPT reviews. And I don't know how much time that person may have. And, well, that brings up another interesting uh, question is what are the most complicated? I, I actually never really thought too much about it. I mean, I'm pretty sure it's in the orthopedic area, but um what are the most complicated coding uh, situations and an area that perhaps organizations that do those types of cases really have to get not only somebody that's uh, certified, but has substantial experience in coding, not just a, a little bit of experience? You're correct on the orthopedics. Orthopedics, you have coders that love it and yeah. you have coders that cringe or it's cringe worthy for them. And that includes podiatry. I, I will include podiatry in the orthopedic realm although we do have separate and distinct specialties in itself. Yeah. But those areas are the highest, the highest error rates that we see. But also, as I mentioned, pain management, you lose some levels mm. depending on the carrier. It's more of a carrier issue that can make these different specialties complex. GI, believe it or not, is one that we see many errors on, mainly from the diagnosis aspect of screening versus surveillance, because there are deferring guidelines from the AHA, American Hospital Association, and the Affordable Care Act oh, wow. recommendations. So depending on how you how your facility goes, if they're following one versus the other, can impact how their error rates are. And GI is definitely one of them on the diagnosis aspect, but on the coding CPT aspect, you've got the orthopedics, spinal cases, and your, believe it or not, more of your hand surgeries where you have the different tendons. How difficult is it today to hire uh, experienced coding people? Is it, what's the market look like? It is very difficult because of the level that your ASCs anticipate and hope to have running running and starting out through the gates. Um, as I mentioned before, you can put out feelers and once you start testing, you realize this is going to need additional training before we get them up to speed. So that's where in that case, because it may be difficult to find a coder, sometimes the facilities resort in, in outsourcing that particular job function of their business office. Yeah. And that brings to the next topic is really, you know, the prevalence of 
of uh, coding companies. I, I know, of course, now we're talking about something that you you indeed do. Um, so talk a little bit about what an organization should be looking for when they do decide to outsource. And I will just state, since you are one of my best friends in the world, that you are certainly the first place you should be talking to. Uh, but beyond you, <laughs> or what? You yes, know, beyond why, me. And, <laughs> and thank you. Yeah, thank you very much for that. Beyond me, yeah. <laughs> um, first of all, I always recommend, no matter who you're looking at partnering with, is first of all, they've got to know about the Ambulatory Surgery Center yeah. coding, billing, and reimbursement on all three levels. They, it, you know, when you have too many product lines, you tend to be in murky waters. Yeah, that's a good point. And the quality and accuracy may get lost. So make sure you partner with a company who has proven their expertise in ASC coding. I know that for me personally, that's all we do. Um, as far as the ASC side, we don't work with E&M coding or inpatient coding. Um, that's just our niche. And that doesn't mean that a bigger company can't do all those product lines, but we have seen from audit perspectives, whether we're auditing them or not, that it tends to get lost, the expertise. Yeah. Um, we also look at what methodology, uh, methodology that particular company, when you're looking at a company, you, wanna, you want to see what is the methodology in how you are coding, even if you are an ASC coding company. Do you go by CMS, Medicare Guidelines, AMA, American Medical Association, American Hospital Association, Specialty Guidelines? You know, how are we going to do these reviews? Is it going to be a focused or a random review? Um, meaning that if you want simply a, a frequency of an annual audit, mm -hmm. then is it going to be more of a random review versus you've identified issues and you want only those particular accounts to be audited, which would obviously lend to a lower score for that particular coder. So there are a lot of different things to look at. Um, financial classes, your case pool, um, how are we going to determine the scoring, which is a big one. I will say, put that down, write it down now. We There are different areas or different options for your score determination, which could be record over record. You have 10 accounts, and if one of those CPT codes out of eight of one account is incorrect, but the rest of them are, are correct, that entire case is considered incorrect, and it lends for a higher error rate for that particular facility, whereas if you do code over code and you're looking at all the different areas of CPT, diagnosis coding, modifier coding, HICS-PICS coding, all those different nuances and, and areas of coding, then you can really hone in on the detail. And that's what you want. Where is the coder having some areas of need where they may need just additional education and training? And then what are the reconsideration and rebuttal responses? Are we allowed to rebut any challenges that we have with the audit? Because think about it, no matter who's going to do the auditing, they're coders and they are, you know, although auditors, they're still coders and, and we don't have additional information. Maybe we don't have access to your carrier or your contract 
then you provide that to that particular facility or, or auditing company so that they can determine if there is a change in the scoring. And then also what you need to look at is how are you going to educate that coder? We don't want to do an audit for somebody that's just trying to meet what their minimal needs from a compliance aspect is. Meaning if they say, well, we need to do an audit every every year, but they're not following up with education and they never give, we've seen it. They never give the results to the coder to be able to review it and see where she errs. And then later on, she makes the same errors and it's only because they did the audit for a compliance standpoint. So they need to learn from these reviews as well. Um, that's a big, big plus and need for these audits. It also increases your revenue and your reimbursement when you learn from your mistakes. Well, and, and you just bring up a very important takeaway that hopefully everybody will get from this is, is that that coder who you probably lock away in a, in a, in a corner office in your operation uh, maybe, you know, and, and don't think as much about putting them through additional education as you do yourself as a nurse administrator, or as a financial administrator. You know, that person has a lot of control over your revenue stream. And as you said, you know, one mistake that's replicated over and over again could mean a heck of a lot of money that you're leaving on the table. And, and the flip side, you know, if they're coding wrong and you, you know, you could have a legal liability uh, with a huge fine or uh, and certainly take backs there. So uh, this is a position that we cannot take lightly at all. That's exactly right. It's one that is the one position that, unfortunately, most of the business office, they can't replicate. They can't cover when somebody is, when that coder is out. Um, we can't have that coverage. We don't have that coverage or that comfort level. So that's where you really need to get into the thought process of potentially cross-training. The business office manager, I know we're going to talk about that a little bit on our boot camp that we're preparing. That business office manager needs to know enough to be able to be dangerous and ask questions of that coder. There's a lot of power with that coding position. Fortunately, we have very dedicated people in that particular, in all positions, obviously, of our ASC, but in the coding position, you want to be a coder to be in that coding position. Uh, you've talked about audits, uh, coding audits quite a bit. I, I just want to uh, touch on two areas here. One is uh, everybody, all organizations should have a corporate compliance plan. And it, as I'm listening to you speak, it seems to me like we need to have another podcast where we talk exclusively about corporate compliance plans. So uh, we'll work on that one after we recover from this one. Uh, but one of the things that, <laughs> that tends to be in these corporate compliance plans is a requirement for periodic audits. So I'd just like your thoughts on, you mentioned a couple timeframes, but uh, your thoughts on an appropriate uh, number of charts or percentage of charts and the frequency of those audits. The frequency of audits, I've always been one, the more, the more I have audits, the quicker and more expediently I can uncover an issue and correct it. Yeah. The longer you wait out to have an audit on an annual basis, the more you have to go back that entire year and make those yeah. corrections. And then you risk the timely filing. So what we see are quarterly versus biannual versus annual audits. There are some facilities that do a 
monthly review, but it really, you know, we see it all across the board that most facilities do anywhere from a biannual to an annual audit. That way they can at least capture what's happening after six months. And the volume is dependent on their case volume. Um, I can't say what's correct. You know, I've seen audit companies only... Yes, yeah. yes. Um, I've seen most look at anywhere from a um, 1% to 10% volume when it comes to yearly, but that is something that may make or break a facility in their budget because yeah. audits aren't the least expensive type of of item for from a budget perspective. However, you've got to ensure that, you know, think about it. Uh, we've we've had one facility come back and say, well, that's a lot of money. And then we go back and look at them and say, well, you you go and perform two cases and you've covered, yeah, <laughs> you've right. covered your annual audit um, at that point, or you perform one case, or you perform half of a case. So um, you've got to look at the percent that you're, that you're comfortable with. Typically, we see anywhere from a range of 1% to 10%. In historic historic findings from our audits, we also you know do that audit piece too. But um, it's workable with the facilities. But what you miss is if you go too far out of the range of what your ratio is with the percentage you want to audit and what you're actually performing on a case volume, you're going to miss yeah. issues. We can't pick we can't pick the cases that might be an issue. But what's always recommended is that do a focused audit too, as do a random, which, you know, is absolutely from a compliance perspective, what should be done. But if if there's an identifier or even the, the holder has an issue with a new, new procedure that's coming on board, that's something that needs to be reviewed and captured from a focused audit and separate that out so that the facility understands the scoring is because... The, of the weakness in that specialty. Yeah, it strikes me that the the most important times to perhaps escalate the number of audits that you do is when you have a new coder and when you take on new procedures and do it as rapidly as possible so that any errors are detected immediately. Absolutely, and that's where the coder needs to be informed before the cases get put into the facility aspect is to let the coder know that this case, these types of cases are coming on board and ask those physicians for some operative reports redacted, obviously no information in there from a HIPAA standpoint that it's already been performed somewhere else so that the coder can already identify if there's documentation issues and see if they, he or she is familiar with the coding piece and then get that education before those cases are brought on. Uh, Our audience uh, for the podcast is frequently administrators and nurse managers, and I will uh, uh, state uh, on their behalf that they probably have very little knowledge about exactly how coding works. Um, So I thought it might be interesting just for you to kind of point out just very quickly uh, the the elements, what what a coder needs in order to be able to code properly from the medical record, uh, as probably should also talk about resources that you need to make available to them too. Oh my gosh, this is its own animal. I know we probably could go on another <laughs> um, hour. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah, this is another, and we're going to be also talking about this in, in really good detail um, at the business office manager boot camp. Right. So, um, in a nutshell, 
the coder must have the resources, must have the ability to get into the internet and pull spreadsheets, pull CMS spreadsheets for the covered procedure list to know what to fight for as far as looking at the CCI edits, which is the Medicare aspect of the editing process of what can and cannot be grouped together or bundled together or unbundled. It's something that the physician office doesn't necessarily utilize um, frequently. They've got to have updated coding books. They have to have access to specialty guidelines to the payer at local coverage determinations and the payer guidelines, carrier guidelines in that respect. And anything that the business office manager receives from the carrier or payer has to be disseminated to the coder, particularly with the billing aspect. But from the coding aspect, the coder needs to be able to identify or to have that time to code. They have to have explicit and detailed, meticulous documentation from that particular surgeon. And when there isn't a detailed operative report that they need to have established a query process for that physician. That's one thing I see, one item I see that is lacking in all of the aspects is from a coding piece or an auditing piece is that many times these bigger companies, they want to blow and go. They're all about the numbers, getting things out, coding the same day, and they're losing on the detail. They're not querying when they need to. And they're downcoding. So the coder needs to be able to have the complete operative report, the option to be able to query that physician. They need to have the carrier information. They need to have all aspects at their fingertips. When they go in, they're going to read, they are supposed to read every line item of that operative report. And that is how they're going to extrapolate each CPT code, each diagnosis code in compilation with the history and physical, because sometimes the history and physical, which by the way, could be anywhere from one page to, I've seen it as high as four pages, six pages, eight pages. They need to be able to look and see if the current diagnosis and pre and post-op diagnosis are also being provided and, and carried over into that operative report. So they may be able, particularly GI and pain management, where you know, you've got medical necessity issues that they're going to have to look at as well. So once they determine the coding, they have to go through this editing process to see, okay, I've got these seven codes, which one truly can be coded out from an ASC perspective. And then they come up with the coding after they've reviewed the resources, they've reviewed the CCI edits, they've gotten everything together. And that's when they start their billing piece. Or if you or had the luxury of having a separate biller, they give it and pass it off to the biller. So it is a, it is a process that is for each operative report. And so if you have an operative report, such as podiatry and some of these bigger ortho cases, those in itself may be anywhere from two to six pages long. All of this comes into play. And then you have the, we need you to do this within two hour aspect that these, some of these facilities, some of these bigger companies that I forgive me, John, (laughs) 
Sometimes you have accountants running the numbers and you have them dictating, hey, we need this done in this amount of time. They have not walked in the shoes of a coder. And that's where the business office manager and administrator need to spend that time and sit with all the positions and see how these positions run, particularly the coding piece. Yeah, saving $4 in salary and giving up... uh $1,000 in reimbursement does not sound like a very good value uh, proposition to me. Uh, not at all. And uh, you make a, a very strong argument, too, I think, for in-house coding, as I'm listening to you. Um, y- you know, you because only an in-house coder is going to have the patients, uh, the contacts. Uh, they might actually see the doctor on a regular basis, let alone, um, you know, be able to communicate with them. See, who knows? I might even see them in the lunchroom uh, and and be able to ask that question, which an outsource uh, coder is certainly not going to be able to do, and, and won't know all the players there. And and that outsource coder is going to be doing a lot of different uh, organizations, not just one. So I, I I see two things. First of all, using an in-house coder is really probably the the best situation as long as that person experienced. And if you can't use an in-house coder, use somebody that that has the time, the resources, the ability to be able to communicate with your doctors. Give them that ability to communicate with your doctors so that they can follow up on those things that need to be followed up on. Well, I agree with that because but on different on different aspects. First of all, it, you know, you can get in a really bad habit of simply going to the physician yeah, and asking yeah. him, can you clarify this? And he's given you a verbal and we cannot have a verbal from a physician. So Got the in-house right. coder still needs to do a query process. I so yeah, that's yeah, I where that. it's. Yeah. Yeah. But I do agree on, you know, in a perfect world, if you have want a coder who is versed with what you're doing and is doing it correctly, high accuracy levels, quality We've got to ensure that that particular aspect for that coder, we look at the contract aspect for that coder. You've got somebody there. They have access to your contracts. They have the insurance grid. You can't necessarily give all your contract information to an an outsourced coding company. But in that respect, the coding company should communicate and ask for information on your different insurance policies and if, how they are following Medicare versus AMA. And that's easily done in, in forms of what we do is our carry billing forms where we are very nit, nitty gritty on, you know, let's talk about each of these particular payers. However, again, going back, nothing beats having an in-house code. Yeah. Nothing beats. Whether an, a company is going to say, yes, we can do it. Nothing beats having an in-house coder. I would definitely stress, though, anything said by the physician, you know, because we can assume that's the bad part. You know, you start getting an op note and it doesn't have the detail and we know that doctor very well. And we go, oh, what he meant was this. And really, it's not documented. So then here I come to audit you and I don't see it's documented still. And now you've got an issue with having to send in corrected claims because you know that doctor so well, you're assuming, and you know what he meant, and he doesn't want to be bothered anymore, but he's still not dictating that detail. And lastly, why don't we talk about our upcoming boot camps? So uh, just a little bit of history. For, I'm assuming almost everybody uh, that listens to our podcast knows about our our uh, industry-leading uh, boot camps for directors of nursing and administrators and 
And uh, uh, Christina, you join us uh, for both of those conferences periodically. Uh, you and I have been working for three years. It's taken us three years to get this done uh, to put together a, a business office managers boot camp. Uh, and we have set a date. We've got an agenda. It's uh, going to be August 8th through the 11th, uh, 2023. And it's not just those dates. I guess that's important to point out is that uh, during those four days, we're going to be doing a uh, virtual four-day, you know, 32-hour discussion of everything that has to do with uh, the business office, preparing business office managers for that difficult role, and, you, and and either preparing you for it, or enhancing your skills, or you know, or just uh, beefing you up, and and uh, in all those things that you might have uh, not been able to keep current on uh, on recently. So, uh, Christina, talk a little bit about what your goals are going to be for that uh, boot camp. Well, I hope to be a good mentor towards the business office or for the business office managers and the administrators that are going to join us because right. once again, they everyone needs to know what's happening in the role of the business office function. But I'm hoping that we can lend some extra comfort level to the business office manager and, and administrator position by going over some of the different roles of the staffing for the business office, the we're going to talk a little bit about managed care contracts, yeah. which have a big impact on our reimbursement and financial health of our ASC, and also how to how deep dive into what we've been speaking about today, the coding audits. I'm going to give a little bit of a of a beginner beginners boot camp crunch in an hour of a business office manager's introduction into the ASC coding arena. And we're also going to talk a little bit about managed care contract, the materials management, um, HIPAA, which is a big one, whether you're using someone um, outsourcing your coding or your billing. And then um, I know that you've got chock full of financials that really the business office manager needs to know and know enough to be dangerous. And we're also going to be talking about regulatory because uh, even the business office manager needs to know what's going to happen during a survey and and the importance of the survey process because uh, the business office manager will uh, will be asked questions during that survey. So we want to prepare them for that. So I'm very excited about it. You and I, uh, uh, we, we, we work together very well and it'll be a fun uh, – uh, fun four days. And in addition to the four days, there it is a mentored program, meaning that we have our periodic drop-in sessions. They're usually weekly, and Christina has agreed to join us uh, periodically on those Saturday mornings. And and then uh, as uh, as questions come up, there's also, uh, uh, we, we're using a different software. It's called ASC Central, uh, which uh, all of the uh, boot camp attendees will uh, be uh, given access to, which allows you to ask questions of, of the uh, speakers, ask questions of other attendees, uh, as well as these drop-in sessions and any special sessions that we decide to put together. So if you haven't experienced the boot camp, if, or if you're not familiar with the boot camp, definitely go to our website at ASCpodcast.com. Of course, I will provide a link in the uh, in the show notes here to be able to uh, see the agenda and to sign up for it. But uh um, yep, we're 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 finally going to pull the trigger on this, Christina. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm excited about it. I think this is a win-win for anybody attending, quite frankly. Yeah. And and a note too, just like all of our other boot camps, if you're an administrator and already went through the administrator's boot camp, you can get this for a discount and uh uh, same thing with, I, I imagine there's going to be some nurse managers out there that might very well want to do this, especially if they want to move up in the in the ranks and become an administrator later on. It, 
It's just, it's, you know, it's hard to believe how complex our industry has gotten, especially in the last couple of years and, and how important it is to have this type of training. There's, there is no other training in the industry like what we do. And of course, we have a reputation of having fun at the same time. It's not a webinar format. Christina, thank you so much for taking the time. I've really, as always, enjoyed talking to you. And of course, let's not forget, both Christina and I are on uh, the uh, ASC Association Education Committee, and uh, we're going to be getting together in Louisville, Kentucky in in May for our uh, annual conference. So uh, make sure uh, you uh, touch base with us. Uh, We'll both be there, uh, and uh, often we're together uh, during the conference, so... uh, if you can find one, you can find the other one. And we'll do, we're going to be doing a couple of podcasts from there also, Christina. So, And I know you're usually in, uh, uh, with us on those things. So, again, thanks for your time. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And I hope that we see everyone either in Kentucky, but assuredly at the Business Office Manager Bootcamp. Thank you. In this segment, we provide an update on upcoming topics for the podcast, our upcoming virtual conferences, and upcoming speaking engagements for John and his staff and other events in the ASC industry. So the ASCA 2023 Conference and Expo is coming up May 17th through the 20th, 2023, at the Kentucky International Convention Center in in Louisville, Kentucky. Sue, we're coming with a pretty large contingent, mm-hmm. I think, between 9 and 10 people from uh, so. uh, Ambitory Healthcare Strategies mm-hmm. and, of course, the entire team from the uh, the podcast here. We're going to be doing a couple episodes, we anticipate, during the uh, the conference. We always have fun getting together and uh and, and talking about things going on. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we're able to get them out actually during the conference, and sometimes we have to wait until afterwards. But uh, expect a wonderful time there. And I think there's still time to sign up for the conference, though. It's uh, getting pretty close uh, at this point. And, Sue, you and I are actually deciding to drive to, uh, to Louisville, mm-hmm. so that should be a fun 13-hour <laughs> drive. But uh, looking forward to seeing yeah. all of you there. And uh, certainly as you see us during the conference, uh, uh, step up to us and, uh, and uh, introduce yourself. We'd love to hear from you. And the Arizona Ambulatory Surgery Centers Association's annual conference and exhibits is June 22nd to the 23rd, 2023 at the JW Marriott Camelback Inn Resort and Spa in Scottsdale, Arizona. And the Florida Society of Ambulatory Surgical Centers annual conference and trade show is July 19th through 21st at the Lowe's Portofino Bay Hotel Universal Orlando. The Ohio Association of Ambulatory Surgery Centers annual education conference And exhibition is September 19th through the 20th at the Hilton Polaris in Columbus, Ohio. And we, of course, will be there in force, and we'll be doing a special episode from there also. And the Idaho Ambulatory Surgery Association's annual conference is September 21st to the 22nd at the Hilton Garden Inn in Boise, downtown. And don't forget about our upcoming boot camps. As we mentioned, the May Director of Nursing Boot Camp will be May 30th through June 2nd, 2023, presented virtually. And of course, our, all of our boot camps include much more than just that four-day conference, including uh, an access to access to a lot of resources, weekly drop-in sessions, et cetera. And uh, the multi-state conference is June 12th and 13th, 2023. It's free to members of various state associations and patron members. And it's a very reasonable $299.99 uh, for anybody that uh, is not a member. And the July Administrators Boot Camp is July 11th through 14th, 2023, 
presented virtually also. And the August Business Office Manager Boot Camp is going to be August 8th through the 11th, 2023. For information about any of these boot camps in our multi-state conference, visit us at ASCPodcast.com. And also, don't forget about our recorded events. They're all available on ASCPodcast.com. We have a credentialing conference, the Fall 2022 Finance and Accounting Conference, Conditions for Coverage Conference, the Medical Director Conference, and an, the On-Demand Director of Nursing and Administrator Boot Camps. And we always want to remind you to become a patron member of the ASC Podcast. It is an exclusive membership website that provides a one-stop ASC regulatory and accreditation compliance, operations, and financial management resource for busy administrators, nurse managers, and business office managers. And resources include some of our virtual conferences, links to various resources, policies and procedures, forms, drills, and discounts on services and books, and access to AEU credits. Membership helps to defray the cost of producing the podcast, including our research staff, travel costs to conferences, equipment costs, and production costs. And for more information, you can visit us at ASCPodcast.com. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. We hope you found the discussion informative and engaging. If you did, we encourage you to share it with your friends and colleagues in the ASC industry. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. We'd like to give a special shout out to our amazing team who make this podcast possible. Our sound editor, Susan Cronkite, our executive producer, John Gailey, and our dedicated research team, Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, Zach Calaritis, Amy Durbano, Lori Rodericks, Kathy Foti, Donna Macchio, Ann Geyer, and Diana Powell. We couldn't do it without them. Our music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah, and the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast platforms. We look forward to bringing you more exciting discussions and insights in future episodes. Thanks for listening. This episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems, Trivalence, and Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Surgical Information Systems provides cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers. Trivalence offers a comprehensive next-generation ASC solution that optimizes payment and supply chain performance, enabling actionable insights. Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies is the nation's leading regulatory and accreditation compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute, legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. If you are interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCPodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com.